Yeah. All right, we're uh, we're about to get started. Uh, Joshua, can I ask you to go into the uh, kitchen there and see if there's anybody who might be uh, there that should be here? That would include my wife. I have a, I have a, a quick. Someone keeps forgetting to turn the camera on in the morning. I just wanted to make a point. I've plugged in the camera. Plugged in the camera. And neglected to turn it on. Yeah, two two times in a row now. I've tried to tune in. For My fault. I, I, I am. I've heard blind. that, so I thought I should bring it to your attention because I complained to your daughter. I turned it on it's today. It's not her fault. I turned it on today. Yeah, it's not her fault. You're right. It's my fault. So you should fix it. I'm gonna fix it. No, wait, that's backwards. It's Mika. Don't love this baby or anything. Oh, that wouldn't work for you? You okay there? You got it? I, I don't want to drop it. Okay. Showing her my thousands of Richard pictures. Do you follow Julianne on Instagram? It's basically all we ever post is Richard pictures. I don't know. You should. They're really good pictures. I'm social media. Hey, Richard, baby. It's all about Richard. All right. Well, let me. It's all about Richard. We go ahead and kick this off here while uh, Joshua gets uh, his son prepared for a uh, an awesome personal discussion. Um, So by way of reminder, it's the 8th of Nissan. This uh, Friday at sundown starts Passover. The uh, Actually, the uh, Pesach. But if you're just figuring young, that out, your house is probably not ready. That's right, yeah. Um, now is the time to uh, de-leaven the, uh, de-louse the house, as it were. And uh, Friday night is the Seder. This kicks off the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Passover and unleavened bread are not the same, but in the scriptures, the apostolic scriptures, you will find them mixed, where Passover is used to refer to the entire week of unleavened bread. Enjoy the matzah, matzah pizza, live forever. Mm -hmm. There it is. So, uh, so that's this weekend. Is isn't there a grandchild missing that needs to be here? Sophia, I think. Mm-hmm. Just get a sip of water. Sip of water. Here she is. So, for uh, for those who didn't know, I have nine grandchildren. Praise God. Amen. <laughs> There's only one who will always and ever be my Number first mm. grandchild. <laughs> and that's Sophia <coughs> Ruth Bartos. So, just for the second time today, if we could, just, you know, real quick, mm. I'd like a high speed happy birthday. <laughs> now, Mike, I don't know if you're familiar with the high speed happy birthday, but. Uh, 
He does everything in high school. He does everything in high school. I've noticed that. That's good. Okay, so so the first thing you need to, to realize is with the high speed, happy birthday. Um, we spell birthday B-I-R-F-D-A-Y. Okay, so it's important. Right? So birthday, right? So high speed would be Got it? Okay, so are you ready? High speed. Happy birthday to you, happy Trash bags are a little scary sometimes too. We do not enough, apparently. That's right. Yeah. Hey, look at him already chill. That's Richard's great. Happy birthday will be something to whisper. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're gonna. And then the end will be. Yes, indeed. And he'll be looking around. All right. So uh, if you're one to pray uh, from the sitter uh, each morning. Uh, or perhaps a couple, two, three times a week. This is your last week. The prayers actually change come Friday, right? So Friday is your last opportunity to pray as you begin uh, in the standing prayer in uh, the Amidah, Shmoneh The very first one there says between, uh, what's it say, between uh, Sukkot? Between Shemini Atzeret and Pesach, you add this line. If you don't add this line, the other six months of the year, right? So we just started the new year, as it were, and now we'll uh, be changing our prayers because of that. There's another line that's like between December 3rd or 4th. Or 4th. And yeah. Pesach. Exactly, and it stops at Pesach. So there it is. So watch that in your prayers. That's a lot of effort going on. That's it. That's good. That's cool. Uh, second thing to remember is Levin's uh, out. The move is tomorrow. For those of you who want to assist with that, that's right. Nine thirty. We'll have. We will have bagels, yogurt, orange juice, and coffee. And gluten-free bagels for those who need them. Cold rain comes free, by the way. That's exactly right. We're going to be very quickly. Bring it on. I'm going to be in the truck at 10. So. <laughs> the good news is um, almost everything is already in our garage, so it's a lot easier to get. And we're not moving the utilities. So the Which are upstairs. Oven, the washer and dryer, the fridge, they're standing out. Please tell us how much you love us. So we're going to try and do this with the whole vacuum thing. We'll be turning that on in the back of the truck there to see if we can suck all the things out of the uh, garage. If we can't, Mike's going to carry them. Uh, so no pressure. That's where the high speed comes in here. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, today is Shabbat Hagadol. Hagadol. This is the big Sabbath. It's the big Sabbath that comes right before Passover. Last week was Shabbat HaKadosh. Which it was, has odd like echoings of Fat Tuesday, but it's not the same idea. Good point. It is not the same idea. So we're in uh, uh, portion Tzav, which means command. And uh, I don't think I've got anything else to say. We're good? Anything else that I missed? We're good? Yeah. So we got the move. We got the birthday. Birthday. 
I reiterate the move. Reiterating and our move. current home is located in Indian Trail. So the address should be on your email. So if you don't know it, just ask. This could be the only other family that can actually keep Shabbos perfectly by walking to shul after they uh, finish their house. Right? If only they would finish adding a sidewalk to the bridge that separates Stallings from Matthews. Yeah, that would yeah, be great. Yeah, but yeah. you know. So we'll take the back to back I mean, he won't be in there basically until we're taking a break anyway. True. July. At which point we have I'm another looking, move, and you I'm, can come help us again. I'm looking at the fall, but yeah, we'll move you in and, and all of that. And of course, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Keep it up. Special guest. Right? So yeah, we don't want to put that on the audio, otherwise everyone would be writing to you from Lithuania and all these parts south. All right, Joshua, bring it home, brother. So we're uh, this week on Parashat Sav, which is command. Um, these are about commandments that go to Aaron, the high priest, um, and the things they're supposed to do for the sacrifices and the offerings. Um, but it's interesting that one of the most important parts of the offerings is actually not about what you're doing with the offerings, but what you're thinking about. And, uh, and Sophia... Um, birthday girl. Birthday girl, right, I know. Um, are, is it important to... To have a good attitude, to have a smile on your face. Does mom tell you to do that? Yes. Why? Do you know why? Because the Torah says that. The Torah says that. That's a good. That's a good reason, and that's very close to the right thing. God does want us to have a happy attitude. That's very true. That's very good. Um, Are you humbly grateful? Look humbly happy. Yeah, that's it. All about. You the, guys uh, know that. Yeah, gotta go back to the uh, the old BBS days. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's the, the uh, GT Express. You grumble and groan. You're happy. Just a quick thing. No, that was GT Express, right? No, GT was the Bible verses. Yeah. I thought Christine made that one up. No. No. Yeah, it must have been Mr. Quigley, yeah. For those of you who went to Vacation Bible School in the 1980s, you can email us at something That's at right. menoftorah.org. Yeah. Somebody brought up saltiness. Uh, no one was alive in the 1980s every year. And you. <laughs> right, that's true. You said alive. That's true. I was I was actually in VBS in the 1980s, um, but the uh, I was teaching. I could have been VBS in the 1980s. <laughs> I probably was too, but my teachers probably didn't appreciate that. Um, You're getting all the sounds of you. But the the important thing is that our our thoughts matter, and I think that's something that um, in it sometimes it's hard to remember that with the Torah, because so much is action based, and we read so many things that are all about what you do, and what you do is extremely important. If you had to choose between doing the right thing and thinking the right thing, it would be doing the right thing. That's what you should do. It's not just what you think, it's what you do. But if all you're doing is the right thing and your thoughts are wrong and your intentions and your heart is wrong, then you're still not meeting the standard that God has set. And the offerings this week are very important. And the Rashi, in the Rashi text, is, as we see in um, the Chabad.org, they have a whole long list of the Rashi text. He goes crazy for sacrifices in the tabernacle. I mean, his commentary is like one, one section every five or six verses, the rest of the Torah. For this part, it's like almost every verse. He's got paragraphs of stuff to say. But one of the things that he points out is that the priests, he uses this, this week's parasha to prove that the priests 
had to be thinking about the right thing when they were offering the offering. And one of the examples that he gives is one of the offerings has to do with you have to eat it. It's a Thanksgiving offering, I believe. You have to eat, or uh, yeah, it's Thanksgiving offering. You have to eat it within 24 hours. You have to eat it that day, that next morning. What's odd about this is it says if he um, did not, uh, if, is, if is the, the tenses in it don't make sense. It talks about this idea like if he doesn't do it correctly, if he eats it afterwards, then it's a problem. But the way that it's phrased, the Torah, Rashi points out, doesn't say if he eats it the next day. If the way the Torah reads in the Hebrew, it's more like if he was planning to eat it the next day, then it's invalidated. It's not a retroactive thing. It's a forward-looking thing. So even if he does the right thing and only eats it on the right day, but he thinks, like, I'm planning this three days from now, then the sacrifice is invalid. His intentions were not right. His intentions matter. And I think it's really important as we think about this week's parsha, um, Rabbi Mike, Rabbi Ishai Fleischer this week, this whole thing, this is really cool, he's talking about the idea that your thoughts are... Are, the, are a big part of the sacrifices today. So the temple's not here. We can't do the sacrifices. But he said that their neuro, uh, neurologists, people who study the brain, they have determined that when you think about hitting a nail with a hammer, that your brain actually acts like you did it. When you think about it and you imagine yourself doing it, your brain actually fires off the same neurons that it uses when you actually hit the, the nail with the hammer. Now, your, your body's not doing it, so there's a different... Obviously, it's different, but from a mental perspective, it's as though you did the same thing. So the sages teach that if you study the sacrifices and imagine yourself doing them, it's as though you kept the commandments. And that's... So they get this whole idea of thinking. What you think about, what your intent is, matters. Yeshua is all about this. Because Yeshua steps in, you, you brought this up at Zadi class. So first temple's destroyed, why? Why is the first temple destroyed? You were there, I want to know. Why is the first temple destroyed? Because the children of Israel were being Absolutely. You know, that's a correct answer. But no, no one in Lithuania heard it. I actually heard it. <laughs> one more time. Because the, people, the children of Israel were not obeying the commandments. Nicely done, brother! Nicely done! Turns out your Tuesday nights are... Sorry. Richard. Your Tuesday night's not in vain, so he's paying attention. That's right, he is paying attention. Um, so the first temple was destroyed because of disobedience. Why was the second temple destroyed? Were we disobedient? Far from it. Baseless hatred. There we go. Baseless hatred. Evil speech is close. Somebody else was similar idea. A very similar idea. The point is that we were keeping all of these little nitpicky uh, commandments, which Check are box. good. Checkbox. Checking all the boxes. We were righteous people. Yeah. But the problem was our heart was wrong. We were doing all the right things, but we were looking at the people who weren't as good as us, and we had a real problem with them. And the master said the same thing. Their hearts are far from me. Right. Right? How often would I gather you up? You would not. But Yeshua's, and so Yeshua, he's in, in like 90% of his teachings, is not teaching us how to do the details of the Torah because they were already doing that. We already knew that. They were really good at that. The problem and what Yeshua focused on in his teachings was about changing the heart. Amen. You look at a woman and think something you shouldn't, that's a sin. You hate your brother in your heart, you think about things, the fact that you're mad at them, that's a sin. The fact that you didn't commit murder is not as important. Well, it is important. 
But the fact that you thought about committing murder because you're so angry at your brother is the same. Which is what we're getting here. I think I actually have another comment. I'll come back to you. That's an interesting point. Um, Yeshua's examples seem like they're from the negative, though. Like, mm. if you thought about doing something, it's like you did, like, negative. Right. Now, the comment you made from Rabbi Mike was actually positive. Thinking about the sacrifices, like, it's the negative for doing them, that would be on the positive side. Right. He probably had not encountered many Christians who, like, I just feel like it's different when you talk about obeying God and saying, well, I'm going to think about doing it. And not actually do it, you know, God knows my heart, it's, you know, it's fine. Because I, I don't, I kind of have a problem with that. You're absolutely right. And I think the big thing about the sacrifice that's so important is that right now, because of the temple, we cannot do them. So, obviously, you're absolutely right. And, and Yeshua does address that issue in talking about, um, uh, you know, talking about people. It's, it's like um, the importance of acting on what you do. And uh, it almost kind of reminds me of, like, the person who, who starts the project, right? So he says, wait, carefully. The guy who starts the tower doesn't finish. And everybody walks by and goes, boy, that was stupid. Um, which actually, uh, which I actually have a real-life example of this. Um, up in the Galilee region, there's a very large hotel that got started many years ago. I don't know when. Um, and, uh, and all it is is a concrete frame. To this day, there is a tower of concrete. Right. At least, let's say to this day. I haven't seen it lately, but the point is it's probably still there. Tower of concrete. The guy had a great idea. He built a big hotel right there in the Galilee. Ran out of money. As a tower of concrete. It's more expensive to tear the tower of concrete down than it is to keep it there. And every time you go past it, you think to yourself, he didn't have what it takes to finish. That was Yeshua's example. And that's to your point, Morgan, I think it's very good, is that it's like, you say, well, I'm thinking about it. You know, as that, this is not Yeshua's words, or even in the book of Second Hezekiah, which some people like to quote. But um, there's a popular phrase that I do think has some validity, which is to say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. People can say all day long, I'm planning to do something good, but until they do it, it doesn't matter. But if, in the meantime, when you can't do something good for whatever reason, thinking about it is a healthy preparation for doing the right thing, and in the meantime, that is something that's, that's honorable before God. Yes, sir. All right, so... So, so I don't think your son liked what you were just saying. So, um, so I'm, I'm going to take. He's weeping over all the people that are doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to take. I'm looking for the best way to say this. So I'm going to disagree with you. Um, well, we might call that the position of the devil's advocate. If you because were advocating, I mean, you'd be wrong. If, I, if I started, then you would be the devil's advocate. Okay. So anyway, um, yeah. Not if I was. Right. I don't disagree with the tenor of what you're saying, but I want us to be very careful about certain statements. So let me perhaps offer an adjustment. An adjustment. Yes. Okay. Uh, so you said, uh, and I'm of course paraphrasing. Um, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right. That's what my master said. Right. You added, then it's sin. That's a sin. He never said that. I would consider committing adultery oh, no, 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 no. as a sin. We're not. 
concerned with what you think now, with what I think. We already heard what you think. I so, think it's implied. So I, I think it would be better if we said, as you did, the master's concern about our thoughts. And that it is the beginning of what leads to action, which is sin. So I agree with where you're coming from, that our thought, thought life matters. The thoughts themselves clearly are not sin. They lead to sin, like, and here's example. Like, be angry, but do not sin. Correct. Well, anger so is what, not the same. Right. Anger is not the same. So, so what he said... Murder, too, because you said they were the same. Right. Like, so, thinking about murdering and murdering were the same, yeah. which I also disagree with. Exactly. We all disagree with Joshua at this point. <laughs> but it's but important to recognize <laughs> that the only thing we disagreed with is when he said, that's sin. No, it leads to sin, because the sin is the action. Because you, but, can't, you can't do anything about the thought. No one could, there's no court that could do anything about your thought, about killing your brother. No, no, but there's yeah. lots of yeah. sins yeah. that are not punished in court. There's no way to punish it judicially. Yeah, you know, I, just, I don't think I, that's the point, though. You know, so Juliana and, uh, that, and Gregory, you guys are you guys are both having a field no, day. No, no, but wait, I, just I got to... the floor, so let me finish <laughs> okay, it. Thank you, you very much. You were and just helping, though. We were and helping. I don't want, uh, my point here is, and that's why I wanted to understand how I started this. I'm not trying to correct Joshua. I think he's right. But wrong. The statement's not correct. But what he's saying and what we should be getting from this, I think, is absolutely spot on. And the sages go through this in great detail in the Midrash. They talk about, and they name the guy. He's always the same name. I can't remember what his name is. But, you know, so-and-so. Everybody knows so-and-so. All the priests know so-and-so. And he goes through the actions and does all the sacrifices. But all the priests know his heart is not in the right place. He's just not there. And I think the scripture in this portion makes it clear from an intention perspective, he gets didi, doo-doo, nada, nothing out of those sacrifices because his heart's not there. So when we go to the apostolic scriptures and, and we look at this, you're right. The master in chapter 5 of Matthew is very clear that our thought life is as important to God as our actions. But he never in any place says it's sin. And that's the only thing that I think anyone here is taking an umbrage with. And so, I, again, let me continue with the quoting of the Master. But I say to you that you shall not commit adultery. That is a command of the Torah, which the Master cannot change. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He can't call it sin. He did not call it sin. Right. It's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. That's where it all starts, in the intent of our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. With the intent of our heart, we act out. So he doesn't claim that it is sin. He's just saying that's where the problem starts. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Um, whoever divorces his wife, let her give it. But I say to you, and so on. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of life. 
So just want to quickly respond, and I respect you so very much. So don't take this <laughs> as anything other than a disagreement. Absolutely. Um, that one of the commandments in the ten that we do talk about quite a bit, we quote, um, and you're very good at this with all the little, like, you know, hand motions. That's right, yeah. Thou shalt not covet. Yes. Which is very much a thought-related sin. You bet. So when Yeshua says, thou shalt not commit adultery, and that lusting in your heart is as though he's committed adultery with her in his heart, to me, I would see that as fitting in the coveting box, which would be sin. But the important... But, but he doesn't say that. Well, I think he doesn't even, use the word, but I think when he says adultery in your heart, I think it's close to saying... I mean, he didn't say, this is a sin, but actually no one says that. God doesn't say, this is a sin. He says, don't do it. And I think that's exactly what Yeshua is saying. Okay, so you're on such thin ice. Let's let's share with that. So the yeah, first point, crazy. by the way, I think everybody here in this room knows, but just to make sure the folks listening, I have more respect for this son-in-law with regard to his knowledge of the Torah than I do of my myself and my knowledge of the Torah. So don't don't think that there's any kind of problem with our relationship. This is this is called arguing. I'm, I can't say you're next because he's in charge this week. <laughs> um, but let's let's look at it this way. The reason why I say you're on thin ice is because the visible representation of the church today would say the Torah. Let's call that, Michael, just for your sake, instructions. Okay. Um, your sister knew that, but I just want to, you know. So the instructions that God gave, that's the law, that's the Torah. The instructions are immutable. That means they are unchanging. They cannot be changed by any man, and God is not like a man that he should change. Hence, hence, those things that were laid out as law, instructions, and sin, by which a man would die, spiritually as well as physically, cannot be changed. So if you're saying that the master is implying that it's like this and he's adding to the Torah, he's that not. of course can't happen. So what but you're living like he is. No, 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 no. So so what the what the Torah says is you shall not commit adultery. You that shall is not physical covet is what I was focusing on. Of course. Because it's so ethereal. So let's focus on the one that's physical well, that's, and see yeah, if we can right. do that. So the Torah says, you shall not commit adultery. That's actually... Now the ma absolutely. Now the master says, if you think about committing adultery with a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. He then stops because he's made his point. He's done your thought life is important to God. Right. Your intentions are important to God. And they are the root of what will happen. So, if I act this out, if I, if I think about the, this woman in my heart, and commit adultery in my heart, it's not good. He never says it's sin. God never said it was sin. And therefore... It's not sin. That doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's good. It's a fence. He's building a fence. He's building a fence around. Let me throw in one, the other example because I think it's more clear. Is that because you don't like mine? No, it's because you and I are disagreeing over the definition of coveting, and I don't want to focus on things we disagree on. I never on. used that term. You did. Yes, yeah, so I want to focus on different Twice. terms. I'm quoting 
Yes. Leviticus 19, we haven't gotten here yet. 1917, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Yes. That's a commandment. So when Yeshua says, if you hate your brother in your heart, he's comparing it to murder. He's not saying it is this equivalence of murder. I absolutely agree with you. Sure. We're not the same thing. Right. But he's also not creating new commandments. He's literally taking from the Torah and applying it. No question. Because people glossed over this one. Yes. They were so focused on the ten, and they were focused on the other ones, they were missing this one. And yes. He's like, don't forget about Leviticus 19.17. Yes. That matters. And so he compared it to murder as an emphasis point. Not saying that it's the equivalence of murder, not saying that if you can, if you think about someone hating your heart, you should be executed because you committed murder, but saying that nonetheless, it is unacceptable before God. We agree, 100%. So I would say that's definitively sin, and it's in your heart, it's not an action. Now, there are some thoughts, I will agree with my wife at this point, there are some thoughts that are not sin, and certainly we see in, in James and elsewhere um, that, you, you know, Hate and sin not and whatnot. Be angry and sin not, I should say. Be angry and sin not. That the um, that there is a line that's crossed, mentally, intentionally, emotionally, whatever it might be. The fluttering thought that flutters over your thought heart briefly to think about. Well, there's a car coming in that direction. If I swerve quickly, I would run right into the front of them. You know, like that's not murder. That's not even hate in your heart. Sitting in your room thinking, I really can't stand my neighbor. They, they always, you know, they park in the wrong place behind my driveway. I really, boy, if I, if I, was, in a, if I was the most you know, powerful person in the land, I'll tell you what I would do to that person. That's where the line, you know, that's the line gets crossed. It's, it's great that you come up with this ethereal line that gets crossed. That's right. but, but it says but you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But what does the it word mean? of God is extraordinarily clear, and the Sanhedrin okay. was unable to use mental assent no, no, it's not or a human judgment. It's God's judgment. No question. Yes. Okay. Well, I think. Well, I think. Oh, Schmidley in the back. I, well, no. I mean, I, it was just. I, I was curious about that line which you just mentioned because it does seem that Judaism differs. It has different definitions of that line from covenant, for example. When we okay. went through our Tuesday night class, it did seem like they had. Some pretty clear halakha around what exactly it means to covet, and it was all action based. None of it. I was. thought it was all thought based. Like no, it's what you plan it, it out. Was, something. It was, but it was planning. Like it started with that, which is where the masters come. It was like literally putting it down on paper. Like there were action steps being taken, but still not actually doing the act. It's not doing the act, but there there is definitely action. Like, I, and I would be curious to know Judaism's approach on what. It actually means to hate your brother. Like, at what point is that line crossed? Because it seems like, from what I've read, that they they do try to focus pretty heavily on Actions. some kind of action, Which not just thought. Because it, it would be so hard to to regulate thoughtfully. But no, but that's impossible. but that's exactly it's what this what we say. It's not what we think. It's what, what we do. And I and I normally agree with this statement because I'm dealing with people who don't care about what you do, they care about what you think. But in this particular case, in the book of Leviticus, if you read the Rashi text, it makes it very clear. The priest does every detail correct, slits it the right way, pours the blood out, sprinkles it on the altar, they put the right fat on top of the right piece of meat, they put it all on there, they time it 100% correct, they eat on the right day. 
But in the midst of slaughtering it, they're thinking, you know, I don't feel like eating it today. I'm going to eat it three days from now. The whole thing is invalid. There is no question, and I think everyone agrees with you, that the intention of our heart is important to God. It's when you say, when you say it's sin, that everybody's hackles go up and go, hang on a second, well, you have no right to call anything sin. Okay, let's God let's do be that. Back. not a case of intent. But my point, though, is... It's interesting. Let's back up then. You want to take the word sin out of the picture. That's fine. So it's not sin. But we would agree that God would most prefer us to have our intent correct and our thought life correct. I would go even further and say that the, the implications of our heart are actually important to God. And therefore, as righteous children... Who would want to do everything that pleases their father yes. in heaven? Yes. Whether or not it technically is considered sin, yes. which to me is irrelevant. Yes. We want to please God. Yes. Let me, Mrs. Garner, finish. If, That's if, what if, I was going to say. If, if, in which yes. case, the definition doesn't matter. That's right. Okay. So, again, nobody's disagreeing with what you're saying. We all agree with what you're saying. Except that little thing where you're saying it's, but it's not a sin. It's not a sin. But, yeah, because I think it's important our attention on what we should be doing as opposed to trying to add guilt for you re- reviewing all the thoughts you had in your past. I need a lot more guilt in my life, Gregory. So that's why I think it is important to focus yeah. on the positive, and you're exactly right. Our thoughts matter, and that is that is very important, but I think once we start, I think that's just the first thought that comes to a lot of people's minds is, wait a minute, if that was sin all along, like how many times have I, you know what I mean, and that's just... That's what most of my drives home are actually about asking God forgiveness for the things I thought about during the day. Absolutely not. And there is there are actual sins that you do bring offerings for, so there is some variation there. I, I'm not saying that there's like clearly we'd have to bring an offering. In most of these cases, it wouldn't be a sin offering because we hadn't committed the act. Right, like right. We hadn't committed sin, sin, but the guilt. Oh my goodness, that guilt that you got to bring as soon as you realize. Yeah. Oh. Guilt is a good word because, of course, God doesn't want you sitting there thinking about committing adultery. And you might feel guilty, but I do think there's no sin in Confessing to God your thoughts does seem to fall into the in guilt the, offering scenario. You're not, right. not the offering. No, 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 not the offering. It's just, but it's the same thing. No, I don't think it's the same thing. The guilt offering. Admitting to God that I did something, that I thought something wrong, it's not the same thing as offering an offering. Or, are you doing that because you're guilty? I am. 
Well, then that's what the guilt offering is for. Thank guilt you for offering was actually my no, the guilt offering was actually for when you didn't know what you did. The sin offering was the same, but you know we're going to talk about definitions. Okay. I married this. Oh. I talk. We talk a lot. I know. There's a lot of talking. In our but this has been good. In I, fact, I, I want, I I want say, everyone on the podcast this has to been listen. Great. I want the podcast to listen. This is what a disagreement should look like. Mm-hmm. We walk through it. We, we come to the end of it. Um, I haven't called him any names out, out of my head. And no, wait. Wait. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Which, all the ones inside my head were not, apparently not a sin, so I feel guilty about that. That's right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> just joking. We agree. No, but, the, uh, the, but no, this is good. And it's good yeah. to talk about these things. Um, more importantly, though, is I think where we do agree, which is to say that the ideal, the point that, that God wants us to be, is monitoring what we think about what our intent is, because whether or not it's sin, it's better. I mean, and I, and I would I would I would dovetail to what you said, and and go back to the Tanakh and say, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has a clean hands, if your heart, and a pure heart. So there there's no question. No one's denying the words of the Master. It's just that definition of sin, and in my mind, making sure that the Holy One, blessed is He, is the only person ever, anywhere, who can define what sin is. And the Master was right, as you pointed out in your, in your start. It's not that we weren't keeping the commandments. It's that our hearts were in the wrong place. And our hearts need to be in the right place. And one of the things and we, we learned from the destruction of the Second Temple is that God starts their actions. When our actions matter the most, that's what we learned in the first exile. But the second exile teaches us that if our hearts are wrong, that will generally lead just as bad. to bad actions it's just as bad. that may not appear as bad, because that's the key. Because the point was not so much to say that the actions that the people were doing were all good. I mean, you mentioned this in our study class. You know, they're out there stabbing to death the people who disagree with them. That was bad. Members, yeah. They had a very they, they thought they had a good reason for it, which is why they justified it. But the Torah, especially the book of Genesis, is littered with examples of godly men doing very bad things with very good reasons. That's right. Because they didn't know the scriptures or they didn't understand what God meant by them, and as a result they made very bad actions. Um, oftentimes tied to a poor intent. And, and righteousness comes from a mental state. So it starts, you start here, and as you, it translates. Abraham believed. Right. Mental assent. So it's all, it's all intertwined. I think I've got my mom and then my brother. I just, I'll just remind me of Matthew 15, mm. where he says, these people, it's from Isaiah, he says, these people draw near to me with their mouth honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And then he goes on, and it's where he comes into what goes into the mouth, is what defiles me. And then he, um, he says, and not what goes into the mouth defiles the man, what comes out of the mouth defiles the man. And then he goes on down, and he says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, fault witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Mm-hmm. So, so it was Mark 7, it's parallel passage. Right. I mean, it's specifically talking about hand washing in, in that instance, but 
it's showing that you are defiled mm -hmm. by what? And I think of the old proverb, the bird lands on your head is not a problem, it's when he starts making the nest right. that, that becomes the issue. So, you know, thoughts can be the thing. A passing thought is not an issue. The thought that remains and is fed that's the start. becomes the issue. Amen. Yeah, and I think that's where, probably why we're so um, intent on this, those who disagree with some of what I'm saying, um, is because, unfortunately, we have too many people who have good intent hmm, that, have un that have mistaken the Master's words and reinterpreted them to mean what you do is irrelevant. Right. And that if you do everything right, but you happen to have a thought flow through your head, well, you're going to hell. That's it. It's over. Yep. And, you know, or if you did everything right, but you didn't acknowledge that God was the one who enabled you to do it all right, you're going to hell. It doesn't matter. In fact, it was, it, all of it was sin. You did everything right, but that was a sin because you weren't thinking the right thing in the middle of it. Right. That is definitely not what God is saying here. The difference, though, I... Nor is that where you were coming no, from originally. Right, right. That's not my position. Yeah. But I think that what this passage is trying to teach us and what Yeshua is trying to teach us is that our relationship with God, just like our relationship with each other, is damaged when our thought life and our intent life is incorrect. It's Dam not to say... Damaged instead of the, the word sin is everybody in the room is on, on the same sheet of music with you. You are preaching to the choir. And the exa best example I can give is, you know, as a kid growing up, you, well, you may not have this, but everybody else, no, you have not. Everybody else here probably did. Um, you know, uh, your parent tells you to do X, and you do exactly what they say with the biggest pout and attitude that you can come up with because you were so angry that they made you do that. Oddly enough, my parents were not okay with that. Um, and for some reason afterwards, I got in trouble for doing exactly what they told me to do, but because they did it with the wrong heart. But Dobson, Dobson goes through that in his, uh, in his book, right? Doesn't he say, I, I told you to sit down, but you're still standing, still standing up. standing up in the inside. In, on the inside, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing. That's exactly right. And you're right, to your point. I mean, God wants obedience. Mm -hmm. All the way through. It's soup to nuts, you know. And, and we look at the uh, the Ark of the Covenant. It was gold on the inside, right? And it was gold on the outside. all the way through. Morgan, you're coming. So you described a couple of different ways. Yeah, she uh, thought, um, different like thought patterns just now. But I think another one that I've seen is what we do doesn't really matter that much. Even like the commandments doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but it's but our thoughts as long as we have enough love for God. Mm, we love uh, God so much. Mm. We pray every day. Then what we, we do is worship own. every day. Yeah. The fact that we can't really keep the commandments, choose not to, irrelevant because we just love God so much. We keep telling him we love him, keep telling him he's a great God, and that is not enough. Right. And, and that, sufficient. That is, that is not enough. That's not fine. And ironically enough, it's ironic that, that you bring that up because the exact passages that you cited earlier where God was upset because they were doing the right things but had the, the wrong, wrong heart, yeah. wrong intent. The, the, the thematic element of that is exactly what you described. He said you're offering all the sacrifices. You're coming to the temple. You're keeping the festivals. You're keeping Shabbat. I hate it. I don't want any of that because you're coming into it and you're mistreating your neighbor. You're offering offerings but you're blaspheming me. 
you're keeping the Sabbath, but you're worshiping idols on Sunday. And ironically, the church then takes that and quotes just that and says, see, doesn't want your Sabbath. sacrifice. And what the mistake is, is that what God is saying, just like you, exactly like Yeshua said, is that this is better. Now, I don't want you to choose between them. He told the Pharisees, you're keeping above and beyond the standard. And you should keep doing that. But while you're doing this, why don't you take care of steps A, B, and C? Because the fact that you're doing the advanced class is not as important as doing the basics. Amen. It doesn't mean you stop doing this. It means you should do both. Amen. And I, I think when we read through Nesset um, Yesharim, and if you read through a lot of the texts from the sages and the rabbis, their goal was not so that you would skate by the C- minus and pass the class. Their goal was how close can you get to be to God? That's right. And that's why they talk about things like the super righteous man. He even keeps the promises he makes in his head. He doesn't even think about what he said out loud. That's not, there's no definition of a vow that involves thought life. That's right. But they would say that the truly uh, man of integrity, the true man of integrity, will even keep what he intends in his heart because his desire is so strong to be the same all the way through. Did you have anything else to say? No, we had the exact same words for words. My son and my mom, you can see that obviously my mom's son, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, she did a good job teaching. They're on the same page. Um, But so that I think one of the things that's interesting about this whole passage that I I was listening to Rabbi Mike and Yishai Fleischer, one of the things they said that I thought was really cool, and I was thinking through like what the ramifications, they talked about the idea that because there's no temple, we literally live in an age of, of intent as a Jewish people. There, there's so few actions that we can do from the text we're reading right now that we live in an age in which we're, most of our worship, it's certain, is, is thought-based or prayer-based, but it's verbal. But it's, a lot of it has to, is very different. It has to do with that ethereal abstract. As Rabbi Mike said, we're, literally, we're a people living in abstraction. Um, the creation state of Israel changed a lot of that, so we're stepping towards the right direction of physical action, the, as they put it, the embodiment of the Jewish people. But right now, a lot of it, even still, is very abstract. What do you think is so fascinating? Because if you think about it, well, again, we said earlier, the second temple was destroyed because of intent, I mean, because of a heart that led to bad actions. We can say that. I think that's valid. Hatred in the heart led to hate, hateful actions. But, what's mm-hmm. the, but the focus of it was the hate part because that's where it started. And I think it's so interesting, like basically if you, if you boil it down, we sinned in the abstract, or maybe not sinned, depending on your definition. Mm-hmm. We displeased God in the abstract. As a result, what was God's punishment? For 2,000 years, he's put us in a place where the only thing we can do is the abstract. All we can do is think. All we can do is, is pray. We can we can channel that, but it's all this sort of ethereal actions and thoughts and intents. It's almost like he said, okay, so the one thing you can't get right right now is your heart. So for the, for the exile, all you can do is in your heart. Now, once we get that right, then we'll be able to do the actions again. And it just was really interesting to me to think about, like, so for thousands of years, people read this passage, and instead of reading it, I don't know about you. It's hard. It's dry. But there are men and women around the world today that read through this passage and their hearts burn. They cannot wait to do the offerings. 
One of the things I thought was so funny about that podcast was that Rabbi Mike makes a point multiple times in the podcast he's a vegetarian, but he can't wait to do the offerings. I know, that I was, was really cool. It. But the point is to say that, like, um, think about that difference for God. You know, the, the tragedy of the Second Temple when it was destroyed is that the people that were in charge of it were the most corrupt. They had the, the worst relationship with God, and they were the priests. So over the last couple thousand years, essentially what God has done is he has, you know, brought that, he's reset that. He has cleansed that so that instead he has a people who read through these passages and, and then not, rather than take them for granted, they can't wait to do them. And I hope that that is where we end up. We're getting into the book of Hebrews. And the only way that you can read the book of Hebrews and understand it is to put yourself in those shoes. If you don't realize that the temple was the absolute centerpiece of worship of God in the first century, and it was the way that you met with God in physical form, Drawing near. you actually interacted with God in your body. And that was the most unbelievable spiritual experience that you can ever imagine. If you don't know that, then the entire book of Hebrews will make no sense to you. Because it's not even a question mark in your mind. Well, of course you're going to choose Yeshua over the temple. Who cares? But if you realize that the temple was the only way that you knew how to get the closest to God, well, now it becomes a really hard decision. Well, so the people who are in the temple are telling me I can't come and worship there if I profess Yeshua, so maybe I guess I shouldn't I, profess Yeshua. Maybe I should I should walk away. And the book of Hebrews point is absolutely not. Going back to what we're talking about intent and heart, he's saying that Yeshua is worth so much more. Don't walk away from the most valuable to keep second best. Right. Um, but the mistake that is made so oftentimes, and what you I brought up very clearly, Morgan, is that when we talk, and you mentioned this too, when we talk about that second best element. Too often in our modern times, we're assuming that that's of worthless value. And second best was still second best. And it's still extremely important. But if you had to choose, you'd take the top one. But today, where we are today, we're not making that choice. Um, instead, we're, we're limited. We can't do what would, would be second best. But our hearts should burn for it. We should yearn for that. And we should look forward to it. Um, did want to dig into some of that. And that was really, really good and deep. That was so cool. I don't want um, people do, do, to be Do you shy. have a chart that I have on page 24? You know, my fa I want to just for, uh, make a shout-out here. My father-in-law has this really... My father also has this. This that's really right. cool that's where I got special it. hummus um, that's developed by Lubavitchers. Is that, is that right? Is it Lubavitcher hummus? Yeah. Lubavitcher hummus. Yeah. It's a very yeah. special one. Each book has, like, its own book. That's when you know you've really got the cool one is when the entire book is just one book of the Bible. Um, and it has a lot of neat things, including the uh, uh, a lot of diagrams and pictures, and apparently there's a chart on the offerings. There is. So we've got two columns. The left column is about the burnt offering, and the right column is about the sin offering. So they say the burnt offering atones for the failure to observe positive commands, which is where you were going before, mm -hmm. and the sin offering atones for the transgression of prohibitions. Okay. Don't do this. Okay. And you do it. Mm. Need a Oops. sin offering. Make sure you do this. You don't do it. That's a burnt offering. Okay. So 
That's cool. I didn't realize that. That, that was new for us this year. We, we went through that. It was like... What's caused a trespass? Burnt or sin? Trespass. Is when you break a command? I, so if you're breaking a, a guilt, positive or command? Or sometimes called a guilt offering. I oh, think it falls into box. So that's... I think it's technically a subcategory in the sin yeah, offering. So they're, but it's specifically about ones that are unintentional. Okay. You so, didn't mean to, but you did. Yeah. You found out about it later. Oops, now I need to make up for it. So they're strictly looking at the top level of first... Hey, we get the positive commands. There's 248 of those, no? And the negative commands, there's 365 of those. I think it's the other way around. There it is. So there's 365 and 248. I could be wrong. One of us is right. Yeah. So there's positive and negative commands. So if you don't do a positive command, well, then you need a burnt offering. And if you violate a negative command, don't do this, and you do it, well, then you need a sin offering. The second row says that the burnt offering covers every, all of it. Hmm. You, know, you got a bunch of positive commands that you blew. You didn't do them. Apparently it's either 248 or 365. It's a lot. That's right. You got a lot of those. And if you didn't do them, you only need one. But with the sin offering, these are the don't do these. Mm -hmm. You need one sin offering for every single one. That you, that you so maybe we can say when you shouldn't have maybe we could no I gotta go there continue alright <laughs> and then you know just timing wise the sin offerings for doing what you should not have done comes first and when all those are out of the way because there's one for each one then you can do your burnt offering which and it's gone and burnt up mm -hmm. so the way they look at it is you want to appease the king for the with these sin offerings. Right. I wasn't supposed to do this, and I did this. I'm really sorry. There's the sin offering. Mm -hmm. Again, and again, and again. And when all those are done, and you've... Can we at least go by category? Because otherwise, I need a lot of sheep. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? Then they say, after you've done that, your burnt offering is pleasing to the king because he's been appeased through all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where they're coming from with regard to burnt offering versus sin offering. Thank you. That's very good. And, yeah. and the difference also is that the burnt offering is consumed entirely, which is why it's a Corbana law. Right. Um, the, the sin offering is partly eaten by the priest. That's right. Uh, which is kind of cool. Not by the individual. Right. It's, it's like they right. get a piece of that as part of their payment for being priests. Right. Which is actually kind of cool because um, it helps reinforce the idea, I, I believe, of God's acceptance. Because you can see the benefit. Because one of the, the biggest mistakes that Adam and Eve make is they ran away. The, the, think about it. My dad likes to point this out. This is so cool. So when you sin, what does God say? God doesn't say, that's it. Go stand in the corner. Don't talk to me for at least two weeks. Instead, he's like, so you, you blew it. You did something I told you. Absolutely do not do it. And you did it anyway. All right. I need you to get as close to the penis as you possibly can. And offer an offering. And that's stand right. in my presence for a little while. That's right. Stay with me. How cool is that? Like, that's, this is the God. But, but there needs to be bloodshed. There does. And actually, I was going to say, one of the things that's really um, uh, powerful, actually, first, before I go there, let me get Gregory's comments. I don't want to steal what this. Is, what is real quick with the, it says in chapter 7 that it sounds like the guilt offering is actually eaten. Yeah, well, it is. I was only talking about burnt and sin. 
I didn't go into any other type. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. No, yes. No, the guilt offering guilt, is also... peace. Yeah, okay. And, and you know, so all the time. Right? offering. Is this is strict. Yeah, the burnt offering is the... The burnt offering yeah. and... <laughs> the burnt offering too. and I think one of the priestly offerings are the only ones that are burned in their entirety. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah, there's no rejection. The other ones are, are eaten. You're absolutely right. Um, no, so one of the cool things that Rabbi Mike and Yishai Fleischer brought that I thought was very interesting is... Uh, and I, this was... Really kind of cool. So Judaism today has a little bit of issue with blood atonement. Not, they don't really like, so the whole messianic disagreement over who Yeshua is and whatnot, actually not nearly as important as some of the additional theological appendages to that. Yeshua's Messiah, not Messiah, that's, that's more an emotional argument um, or maybe a historical one. Um, much bigger issue is uh, two things. One, is Yeshua God or not? We say yes, they say no. And number two... Do I need him for my for forgiveness before God? Does his death and resurrection apply as act as atonement for me or not? Judaism tends to have an issue with that whole concept. But what's interesting about that, even though they have an issue with that, in spite of that, there's a tradition that teaches that when you offered an offering, a sin offering, or, an, or a burnt offering, because as my father was pointing out, they're both for um, failing to meet God's standard, whichever direction that is. We're going to try to be very careful what definitions we use here. Um, one of the things that they said is you had to see the lamb on the fire as though it was you. Because you should have been there. And I thought one of the coolest ways to define this, I thought it was such a great way of looking at it. The reason for that is God gave you life. And you used it to violate God's standard. So the only reasonable expectation is that God would expect that life to be returned. You didn't use his gift the way that he said you should use it. So... He has full right to say, give it back. So instead, you, you offer an animal. And one of the things they were talking about is that in that time frame, I mean, think about it, like the like you walk into the temple and there's white stone everywhere. You can hear, you know, literally dozens and dozens of, of sheep and cows making noise. There's literally a river of blood flowing from the altar area where these animals are being slaughtered. You can smell the meat burning and the smoke in the air. And when you go up to offer your offering, you don't hand your offering to the priest and go hide in a corner and come back when it's properly butchered and, you know, it looks like it's in a saran wrap like in a supermarket. You put all of your weight on the offering and you take a knife and you slit its throat. And in that moment, you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm never going to sin ever again. Because you realized what it meant. And I think that's, I think it's such a powerful example. And the idea that you, Rabbi Mike was talking about, what I was, what I was getting to earlier, was it's not just the symbol. In doing it, if your intent is right, your, whether we can call it sin or not, or action or not, whatever, but your brain is experiencing it. And in experiencing it, you are, you are really determining in your heart, I would hope, should be. I'm never doing this again, because this is what this costs. And I think that's so much of what God's chastisement of us as children is about. This is what this costs. You didn't understand that when you did this. You thought, if, well, as long as I say I'm sorry later, or God's not really paying attention, or no one else can see, so therefore it's okay... God's saying, this is how much this costs. So when God sent us into exile, he was saying, this is how much this costs. 
this is how much pain your sin really results in. You didn't understand that for whatever reason. I need to make that point to you because I don't want you to do it ever again. And I think one of the things we learn, you know, one of the things my father-in-law has to point out, we have breaking Shabbat is a capital offense. The number of people who died for breaking Shabbat, I can count on one finger. The reason is because that guy died for breaking Shabbat. And nobody else did it ever again. That's right. Not that way. And the point that I'm trying to say is that God's intent with those very strict penalties was because it was more destructive to sin than it was to escape judgment. The judgment was not nearly as bad as living your life in that sin. And so God was hoping to save as many people as possible by having a very strict, very swift, very visceral, very bloody with the offerings, experience, so that you didn't do that again. Amen. Because that's what how much it meant to God. I've got Gregory and then my father-in-law and then and Mrs. Garner. So we're going to borrow the room. Uh, to that point, one of the things that I think is a bit of baggage from our former life in the visible representation of the church is not taking teshuva or mm. repentance as serious that's right. mm. as you would have before. That's, right. that's a good point. And I, so okay. I'm, I'm, this is a shameless plug for a great book that's out there called Shirei Teshuva, The Gates of Repentance. And it is basically Mesalat Yashari just around Teshuva. <laughs> like it is filled to the brim with action steps that you should basically take for even the smallest offense. Hmm. And it was, it was the coolest book because it is filled with scripture. The whole thing, like it, one of the most popular quotes is actually from Proverbs, but it's so, it's so many great scripture verses around the steps that you take towards repentance. And so there's all these varying gates, you know, these varying levels of teshuva, everything from confession to, you know, encountering that same transgression again and mm -hmm. avoiding doing it. But there's, there's a bunch. And anyway, it's a, a fantastic book to make teshuva as serious as it would have been, uh, or, or trying to get as, as serious, you know, uh, just shy of it as it would have been to literally slaughter an animal as mm -hmm. your sacrifice. It's probably the closest book that I've come to, to, you know, making me feel that, uh, I guess, as real as, as it would have been back then. I mean, I remember when I was a very small child, I did something wrong. I can't remember what it was. Um, I told the story before, so I'm sure some of you know the story. So I'll say it again for those who haven't listened, you know, possibly in Gastonia. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one time that we had a list of things we couldn't do that resulted in spankings. Um, my parents, I got spanked a lot because apparently I kept doing the same things over and over again. My parents had a very specific list of things that were a problem. Um, and uh, one time, I remember my dad told me that I was supposed to spank him for something I had done. And the intent that he tried to do with that was to say, this is what Yeshua does for us. Boy, I tell you what, it's crazy to think about this, but I, I mean, I, I must have been five. I remember the house it was in. I, I don't even remember what I did wrong, but I remember that moment. I'm, I'm significantly older than five today, but I have not forgotten that. And I think that's kind of the idea and probably part of why the, the, the apostolic writer spends so much time talking about Yeshua's sacrifice. Because they to realize how significant it was. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes, I think, 
And I don't want to. I don't want to speak negatively of the Christian church. I think so. Oftentimes, as human beings, we lose sight of the depth of the pain that our sin causes God, the the significance of the destruction we are doing to creation by doing something wrong. And we whitewash it as though it was an accident, or I didn't really. Well, if I nope, in yeah. my right mind, I wouldn't have done that. It's not a big deal. I'll do it better next time. Whatever. But we don't have eternity with God because two people did one thing wrong. It's extremely important. And and the offering of Yeshua should have made that so much more clear to us. And the fact that those of us who believe in Yeshua forget that is to our great shame. Yeah. And we need to be reminded of that as we get into Pesach this upcoming week. And we think about, as Yeshua says, when you take this in remembrance of me, and you remember the offering that he did for us, it should be a reminder of, of the unbelievable love that God has for us, and at the same time, the unbelievable horror of our sin. Um, and if we miss either of those messages, then we have not really captured everything it should be. So I've got my father-in-law, then Mrs. Garner. Weren't you first? I think you beat her by a little bit. At least not from what I saw. I am an imperfect judge. Go ahead. So the, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, the altar represents man's heart. Hmm. Thus the requirement to have fire burning continually on the altar signifies that our hearts should be kept continually afire with palpable love of God. Hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. I also think, to your uh, last point, that we sin flippantly because of our culture. Hmm. And I don't think we recognize the impact of the statement that all have sinned, period. Mm -hmm. And if we have sinned, and we all have sinned, so if, or let me say, since we have sinned, the sacrifice of my master was required. Mm -hmm. A man died that I might have life in the world to come. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. and a very awful, horrific death. It is. And you'd think that the fact that a man died that I might have life in the world to come would affect my behavior today. But I'm sad to say that it's so far removed that mm -hmm. unless I'm in this type of context, it's not as which is probably, like I said, why the apostles spoke of it so often. Why, why we are encouraged to remember it. I mean, I think that sometimes it's a struggle, to be honest with you, in a Torah walk, to think as much, I think, as we should about what Yeshua means for us. Because, um... Well, well prior to that... That's all was, we thought about. <laughs> it's just an animal. It's just an animal that would, would, right. would cover us, and, and we're okay for the year. Right. Well, and then, and then in, in our personal lives... That was about the only thing that mattered, it seemed like, and everything else was irrelevant, as we've talked about before. And we were trying to get away from that to where, and now I think it's time to, break, to make sure we don't lose sight of, of what Yeshua means as well. Mm -hmm. um, as you were quoting from Hebrews this past week, 
is something we should be proud of. Amen. Uh, and we need to make that a big part of our lives. Um, I've got Mrs. Garner over here. She's been extremely patient, which is a virtue. And before she starts, I just want to quickly say, lest we omit something we should do, blessed are you, Lord, for the food in the land. I just wanted to add part of the sacrifices that have jumped out at me this year were, number one, no hummus on the altar. Yeah. No hummus. And I've been really thinking about that, thinking that hummus has a life of its own. Mm. And it's it's like created by man. It's not. Because mm. hummus in and of itself is not bad. We always have thought of it as bad in the past, as being puffed up or sin, but we're allowed to eat it. It's actually included in a certain out of the There year, are certain so things you bring bad. to the temple that are hummus. Right. Not that you put in the altar, but... Right. And so I'm thinking, so it says, do not mingle my blood with the hummus of your sacrifice. He doesn't want, he wants the life he gave us back, not the life that we created. No. So, hmm. and that's, I guess in Egypt, they had, Alpheta says they created yeast. I, I'm not sure about that, but they used yeast to make liquid bread, which is beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he didn't want that mingled. And mm. so that that has really stuck out to me that hummus in and of itself is not bad. It's that he doesn't want that. He wants the life is in the blood and the life that he gave us is in the blood. He doesn't want that other part. And the other thing that just has really just rung with me, this I, we did, I listened to so many teachings on the Salt Covenant last week, mm -hmm. and it was just mind-boggling and life-changing to me. He puts his salt in the offerings, by the way, for those who right. can't read Right, and that. so you salt your offering, and the oh. salt is representative of two worlds that have been pulled apart. And so, it's because in salt, there's salt and water. And it, there's a whole teaching, I, I'm, I don't know if you guys listened to it, I could text you or listen to it, about how the waters cried because they didn't want to be separated, but they were separated. And so the elements of salt and water coming back together again because when you salt meat, it pulls the water out of the meat. Mm -hmm. And so it comes back together. So it represents something that was, huh. I cry, something that was divided is now being reunited. That is very cool. And if that, that's just such a huge picture to me of Yeshua. I just, it just blew me away. The reunification. Mm -hmm. Just in that, and here we've, we've done the hard, the hard part, the cutting of the, and this, there's so many nuances in all of the, the different parts of the offering that are huge. There's mm. huge implications. Mm. And it just really was really amazing to me that I remember Rick Spurlock in one of his Bible studies said that when Yeshua came, he intersected heaven and earth. And that's what's happening on that. And mm. it's represented mm -hmm. through the salt. And nice. that is a covenant. That's a covenant. That's a really It's good the point. bringing together of two things that were hard. It's bringing back. And that kind of goes to back what you're talking about. This In Hebrew, we call it tikkun olam, the idea of repairing the world, um, and this idea of, of restoring what was. Right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, when we sin, of course, we, we have caused damage in the world. We're actually creating more division, more problems. So repairing the world is an effort to undo that work. What's amazing is that in God's universe, however he's chosen to structure it, um, that is possible. That even when we do some of the most egregious things that we've done, God gives us opportunities in the in the big picture. We can't undo the action, but in the big picture, we can actually repair the universe from our own sins, from the sins of our ancestors, the, even even things in creation that are incomplete. If that could, if that was not possible, 
then the sacrifice of my master would be of no effect. Right. But he is the ultimate tikkun, which allows the rest of us to keep doing it. And because it can be repaired, we should repair it. Right. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And, it, and that's the thing about the offerings I think is so powerful. The, um, one of the things I really can appreciate coming from the Hasidic movement is their desire to make sure that people don't um, get discouraged. They are so focused, and I think sometimes we in sometimes in certain sects of our brothers and sisters of faith, um, we they get overboard on this, and it's like, I just want to give God a big hug, you know? That's how life really is, and it's like that's not how life really is. More importantly, that's definitely not how God really is. And if you think you can just walk into His throne room and give Him a big hug, especially with some of the things you've been doing during the week, that's not going to work out so well. Now, on the other hand, for you, the mis- yeah, right. On the other hand, the other the other mistake that we can make for those of us who disagree with that perspective is to kind of treat everything like, well, it's best if I think about how much I've sinned this mm-hmm. week. Woe is me, worm am I, you know? And mm-hmm. and the the Hasidic movement, what they recognized is that's not all bad, but too often when we do that, we get so down and de- depressed. Not so much down ourselves; that's irrelevant. But we're just emotionally down that then we fail to be obedient. And, and so, if you think about these offerings, what a powerful statement God is making. He's saying, I don't, not I don't care what you did, far from it. What you did is going to cost the life of another animal. That's a huge deal. But as awful as that is, the way to fix it is to get close to me. The way to fix it is to come right back to my temple, do this, and after it's done, it's all over. One of the Rabbi Mike mentioned that was so cool is he said the ashes were taken away at the every morning. You would take the ashes off the altar and move them off to the side. And so symbolically, this is like every morning you start over. Like when we talk about, I think, one, I can't remember who it was, someone quoted the phrase verse, uh, oh, Juliana, Juliana quoted it, be angry and sin not. And one of the things that they mentioned in that passage is, uh, or, um, or a similar passage, is the idea of don't let the sun go down in your anger. And it's like you wake up the next morning, and then yesterday's over. And um, so Rabbi Mike was saying the same thing with the ashes. It's like you take the ashes off. It's like yesterday never happened. We have to move on. We have to move past it. Even if it was good, we have to move past it and start again. And, um, and that's kind of the same way with us with our lives. We have to move forward. And God, the offerings, is making that so clear that we can. You know, and I think that so oftentimes sin is most powerful when it convinces us we can't. Isn't that really what hurts so much about those that are stuck in sin or stuck in depression or stuck in addiction or whatever? Yeah, yeah, whatever it is, is that there is no new start, no fresh day. There's hope. no there's no hope. There's no hope because they they can't start again, and yet we get through the through the sacrificial system to start again and draw near. And, I mean, it's a plug, but I think it's important that we recognize, especially for those on the other side of the microphone, this has nothing to do with our master's sacrifice. Oh, right. Right? So if we Different compare... Context. Yeah. If we compare the sacrifices we're reading about this week and the sacrifice of our master, there may be some foreshadowing or similarities or similarities but they are completely different these sacrifices 
had nothing to do with the world to come. Right. These sacrifices had everything to do with drawing near physically to God. These sacrifices had everything to do with starting relationship over with God right. and cleaning and cleansing it. The right. master sacrifice had only to do with the world to come and a relationship with God. Absolutely. Although ironically, I would say that if you were keeping these offerings with the correct thought and intent and belief in God, chances are, although I wouldn't say it's a guarantee, you're probably in the right place in terms of the faith of the world to come as well. Amen. And that was, it was, so in that respect, there was like a lesson to be learned there, even though you're right, absolutely right, they're, they're separate. I've got Gregory in the back. So, we were talking about like a lot of the offerings in general, and I started, you know, the, something I was reading recently was reminding, you know, that the Torah means instruction, right? So, there, it's, it's obvious that there's more to the offerings than just the category of offerings, but there are detailed for a reason, right? Like they all teach us something. Perfect Design had an interesting thing about the Thanksgiving offerings to learn, but then I started thinking like, okay, well, so what is the sin offering teaching us? Or like, what's specific about that that we could learn as opposed to just trying to memorize like which one was done at that time? Because that's still language of like, oh, that's how it was applicable back then, as opposed right. to like, what does it mean now? Right. But then I remembered a quote from James, and I was curious if you guys think, like, so the sin offering, the priests participate in that. You know, they eat it as well. Um, and, and which means that your sin is being kind of made like public to someone else hmm. in, in a sense. And then James, it, it talks about confessing your sins to one another. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's part of the lesson for today that we can learn from the sin offering? Well, I will say that apparently if we were redefining sin away from a lot of the things that I've been thinking about, I don't have a whole lot to tell any of you. So that's good. <laughs> That's still to be decided, by the way. <laughs> I, I think that uh, the confession of sin to the priest and the reason why you're bringing it and laying your hands on the animal and so forth is uh, cathartic. Hmm. But not nearly as cathartic as the guilt offering. When you bring that, you recognize I, I sh my behavior should have been different. And it, it seemed to me as I was reading through it that the end result should be I want to bring as few as possible of those sin offerings and as few as possible of the guilt offerings. But I'd rather the guilt offerings, but I'd like a lot of the Thanksgiving and peace offerings. <laughs> And may God bless me with enough animals that I can bring a bunch of burnt offerings. It, it's like my life should be focused around him. Not once a week stopping and going, oh yeah, that God thing. Yeah, we should probably pause and do that. Yeah, That's, That doesn't appear to be what their life was like. That's not what Acts chapter 2 is about. Mm -hmm. They were constantly in the temple. They were praying all the time. And, what, you know, you're going into the temple and not making a sacrifice? I mean, really? That didn't seem to be the norm. So, I... You should, I would assume, be thinking about at least one passage of Scripture twice a day. So, 
you know, that that's a good place to start. Yeah. And if you've got those funny little boxes on your door frame, you probably see those regularly throughout the day. Um, then if you're thanking God after every meal, and most of us eat three meals a day, um, pretty soon you're kind of going very long without remembering. You're just, oh, yeah. just kind of being filled with reminders. Um, so I don't, I don't. I don't know about the question. But I mean, I have not answered your question about confessing to one another. I actually don't have the answer to that question. I think it's, I think the struggle, let me just start back. Obviously, James has a very good point in that. And I haven't figured that out yet. And when you do, I would really greatly appreciate you telling me what it is. Um, I I can tell you that Scott Martin is a man that I have confessed to in the past. And he has confessed to me. And it is cathartic. And it is cool. I don't see the reason to share what I shared with him, with you, mm-hmm. or you, or her. I have confessed that sin, and I'm, you know, not necessarily making it public, but sharing with someone else that this is where I was at, and I've recognized that this was not good and I'm committed to making it better and that whole iron sharpens iron thing I think is part of this Hmm. and I think that the priests had an amazing opportunity to be intimately involved in their community intimately You're, you're on duty for what two weeks or something like that as a part of the priesthood and then back you go to your home and you come back again when it's your family's time kind of thing uh, I would imagine they they got pretty close to folks mm-hmm. if that confession was a part of that deal I just was going to finish that thought and kind of dovetail on what my father-in-law said um, I think that the there can be a way it's misused and so you should be judicious in that approach because I do think that sometimes you're talking about if there's like confessing a door sin and getting in a room a little box with a guy with a beard on the other side well so, only no. if you start with father then it's okay <laughs> but, no, um, or sometimes just giving your testimony right well because I have to say like sometimes yeah sometimes testimony the more important thing is that confession of sin without repentance is very very similar to offering a sin offering without repentance you were absolutely right it's cathartic and that's dangerous mm-hmm. because if you confess your sins and don't stop doing them then you alleviate the conscious the the, the guilt on your conscience but you haven't changed that's right and i think so to your point i, your I i'm still trying to think i think i grew up with an un, um in, in in a religious background not my parents my father taught me what i just said but some other people i've been around have kind of taken a approach that I don't think was healthy, which is why I'm still struggling with how to apply that passage um, and what exactly it means, because I do think that it can be taken the wrong way, and instead of being used as a means towards repentance, means is used used as like a, a pressure valve to let off a little bit of steam, and then go right back to doing what I was doing before. And that is very dangerous. The Greek is sclerata, where we get sclerosis. It's a hardening, mm-hmm. right? And and that's that's the danger that and, we would be hardened to sin. And more, and also similarly, you you were with a man of great integrity in terms of talking to him about 
things and sharing things between each other um, and strongly encouraged. But the other, the, other, the other danger is sometimes in confessing sin, I'm not trying to downplay, like say it's something you shouldn't do. I'm just saying like just raising some things to consider when you're thinking about how to do it because another environment that can be dangerous is confessing sin to somebody else who's not in a spiritual place to be an appropriate recipient for that information mm-hmm. can instead hear, well, if he can do it, well, I can, I'm not even doing that bad. I can cross this line and that's okay because so-and-so who I respect a lot, they do this and that's dangerous. So I just like, my point is I'm still trying to figure out the logistical approach that would be the most appropriate within that box. Um, and that's why I say, when you figure that out, you please let me know because I definitely want to be following the book of Jacob in that area. It's just, I want to be very careful how I do it. If we had a temple and we had some godly priests that I could go talk to from time to time, that'd probably be a great place to do it. But since we don't, you know. Um, but nonetheless, a very good question because I think it's something that we don't do, or at least a lot of us don't do. Yeah, and I, I, the reason it made me think about it is first we presented a point about the Thanksgiving offering this week. We're talking about how the regular Thanksgiving offering, just when something great happens or you've been rescued from a particular uh, you avoided something that that could have happened to you but didn't happen to you that it should be eaten that day mm-hmm. that shouldn't be left over at all whereas if it's done because of a vow or a donation then it, it could be like one extra day and so they were talking about how like see this is a great lesson of how like we want to acknowledge right away when something great happens sure. and give God the glory sure. and try to you know, try to really like maybe even invite people over and have like a celebratory meal in order to to share the the greatness that uh, of the of God and, and uh, give Him the glory. Um, and I was it's funny because everything you just said could also be applied to that as well. Like all it, being very forward about the blessings from God in mm-hmm. a wrong context could mm-hmm. potentially be taken the wrong way as well. Sure. Could be misused. True. Um, so yeah. I think probably just being treading carefully on maybe yeah. both of those. Yeah, I think I think that that's important, and I think that because there's a difference. I mean, you can tell like the intent behind the Thanksgiving offering, the glory to God, and the Haman approach. Have you seen all the things? How great my life is! I have all these sons. The the king has honored me. Esther's and the queen has invited me to a dinner. Very different from the God is so good. Look at the blessings. And we think I think Jacob. Jacob, to me, is my inspiration for, like, how to approach this with the, the pagan world. Esau walks up, and he's like, who are all these? And Esau, and Jacob doesn't say, well, that's my 11 sons and my four wives and all of my sheep and herd, and aren't you impressed? Instead, he goes, this is the family that God has given me. And that is so cool, like, to recognize, like, it's not mine. It was a gift from God. Um, and to be unashamed of that before someone who could care less as to who God is exactly um, at the time anyway um, unfortunately these side didn't end so well for him so I do realize we get to the end of the time here Judah asked the question you know uh, asked the, raised the point that we're going to try to fill an hour and a half here and we have done that easily easily um, but we, in the very last Aliyah we read about um, the uh, they call it the investiture or the induction of the priesthood uh, the naming of Aaron as high priest. And there's this whole long experience, and I thought one of the things that stood out to me this week that was kind of cool is he offered the offering, and Moses says, 
you're going to do basically you're going to do the exact same thing for seven days. So let me just read this first. It says, Every single day. Every single day. It says, you shall not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day when your days of inauguration are completed, for you shall be inaugurated for a seven-day period. And I couldn't help but think of a really cool tradition that my wife and I, for the most part, kept, because it was really fun and neat to do, of the Sheva Barakot. And when you get married, you spend seven days in the community. And it's an idea, it's, it's, like, it's like the wedding has a seven-day extension. Um, it's a celebration for seven days. And, um, you know, you read this passage and it says, you shall not, in a Lama verse that says, you know, and if you do, you'll die. And I think sometimes you read that and it's like, ooh, scary God. And it's like, well, yes, you should definitely be afraid of God. But the point of this is that this is like a marriage ceremony. I mean, God is literally meeting with people in earth. I mean, we're talking about the, as, as they're talking about Yishai Fleischer show, like the intersection of the divine and the human, like this is huge. Like, we shouldn't feel like this is, like, I mean, God, we should be afraid, but at the same time, wow. So this is a, this is a momentous occasion in a beautiful way. And, um, and so this is almost like a wedding event. And, and so and one of the things Rabbi Mike points out is it's like how many times in Scripture you see this pattern of seven days and an eighth day is new creation. You have a seven-day week, and the eighth day starts something new. You've got seven days of Sukkot. The eighth day is a new holiday. You know, over and over and again, we see in, 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 in the Bible, we see the seven days as a completion, which means that eight is the, is the new beginning. Amen. So in this, we have a seven days of preparation, of setup for the start of the temple. And day eight is the first, as they like to say, the first day of the rest of your life. Day eight is the first day of a new experience between God and man, which is really powerful. Yes, sir. The, the sages say, you know, seven days of creation, six days man will labor, the seventh day is the days of Messiah, and with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. So we've got 6,000 years that man will reign, and 1,000 years Messiah will reign, and then the eighth day, the world to come. A new earth and a, a new, new heaven. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I think that... Uh, as, as we look back at the, the, the inauguration there, um, the sages in my Bible uh, went through how it seems to be repeated. It goes through, hey, don't leave for seven days kind of thing, and then it kind of says, hey, don't leave for seven days. And they're like, well, that's, if you look at it carefully, it seems to be implying that there are some folks who are in the tabernacle serving those guys need to stay in the tabernacle. And then there's those who are outside, those sons of Aaron who are outside, not serving that week. They need to stay there at the tabernacle, right outside, at the tent of meeting for those seven days. Both hmm. those who are serving and those who are waiting to serve need to stay where they are, hmm. close to God. Hmm. That was a really neat deal. Yeah, one of the things that's really neat about reading Rashi, you want to learn how you should view these passages. Go read the Rashi text. Yeah, It's dry as all get out. It's hard to read, but it's awe-inspiring. Because he'll say, well, this, this word is used twice. 
And as a result of that, we can deduce that what God is saying is we should do this, you know, this way. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. He says it this way this time, but the next time he says it that way, which means that in the middle is where we're really supposed to be. You know, or right. two, you know, it's like he's constantly doing that there the entire, that's why it says the commentary is unbelievably long. Um, and it's like, at the, the level of respect from a man who lived 9,000 or 900 years, almost a thousand years after the temple was destroyed. That's right. Uh, for the details of these offerings that he would never do, um, I think should serve as inspiration for us as we're reading through Leviticus because, um, like we were talking about at the beginning, if you can read them with the right heart and right intent and, and imagine doing them yourself, longing to do them yourself um, the way that God has told us to do, then that is that is an act of obedience. And, and I would say, but more importantly, it is pairing you for obedience, mm-hmm. and and as we, some of us <coughs> chit chatted last night um, after the Shabbat table, that you don't walk into a situation, uh, and your first reaction is going to be perfect. As my brother's karate teacher Tim likes to say all the time, you have better practice this thousand times over and over and over again because when really intense, crazy things happen, you will not react well. If you haven't built the muscle memory to react well, same thing with business. So in the same way, if we are if we are practicing mentally reading through these passages, then when the time comes, um, we will be prepared physically, emotionally, spiritually to obey God, Amen. and hopefully it will bleed into other areas of our life as well. Uh, any final comments? I've been reading the Psalms a lot. And I love the way that there are times David will go through all kinds of anguish, either with it around him or with himself. But he always ends with a couple verses. But I want to give glory to God. Blessed and I want to thank God. And, and it doesn't matter what all he's anguished about in it. He always comes back. And sometimes it's a whole paragraph, and sometimes it's just a, one verse. Where he always comes back to remembering who God is. Mm. And remembering to be thankful. And remembering to give him praise. Absolutely, and that was one of the offerings we didn't really talk about, but the Thanksgiving offering was all about that. Um, and one of the cool things about Thanksgiving offering is that the Thanksgiving offering is eaten by the offerer and the priest and God. Um, one of the things I related relative to the Thanksgiving offering is the peace offering, and one of the things about uh, Mike and Ishak Fleischer were talking about is it's like it's a shalem, it's the wholeness, and it's like you're sharing it in all of these different levels. It's like you're bringing us all together into one place um but that one is a voluntary type thing it's a relationship with god kind of thing and um that's kind of part of our job is to infuse god into the world today like earlier about tikkun alam um infusing god into the world today um thanking god publicly for the things that he's done for us um so that we don't lose sight of that uh in the world that we live in because in the same way that god wants us there when we sin God wants us to be in constant memory, remembrance of his presence here, um, in good or bad, uh, because that's really why we're here. Yeah, we talked about God gave us life, not so that we could spend 80 years doing nothing, you know, and then dying. God gave us life here so that we could do mitzvot, we could please him, we could bring him into the world, and then uh, enjoy him forever afterwards. Amen. Alrighty. Um, 
I'm going to step a little bit out of the box here. Gregory, if you would close us in prayer today. Amen. Mm-hmm.